0: Welcome back, Fungo Banner fans. Eric Sortson here in Big Country Studios. We got a new year, we got a new song. Same great content, though. Another great episode coming your way, guys. Another great person in the Northwest scene of baseball. This episode's brought to you by Devo Bats. Get on their website, DevoBats.com. Check them out. Fungo Banner discount code coming up this week. Stay tuned for that. Tri Cities Safeguard. TriSafeguard.com. Go check them out. They're the Fungo Banter swag maker guys this week's episode jill ross northwest area scout for the kansas city royals previously with the university of washington was with the cougars in washington state for a year guys we break down recruiting we break down scouting and we get into the, some hitting philosophies speaking of that before we bring you this great episode with coach ross put a little tweet out today talking about your path and, and some things you guys do hitting i'm loving the responses it's great to see interaction on the twitter keep them coming please Guys, you know what? That's enough for me. Let's bring Kelly and Jason on, and most importantly, let's bring on Coach. All right, Banner fans, we're back with our guest this week. Really excited to have him on, a guy from the Northwest that's been engraved in the baseball scene for a long time. But Joe Ross, Northwest Area Scout for the Kansas City Royals, thank you for joining the podcast today.
1: Yes, you're welcome. Happy to be here.
0: So right away, our first question we ask every guy, what was your favorite fungo? (laughs) Uh,
1: I still have it, actually. It's a Mizuno aluminum fungo that I've made a trade with the Korean national team for. Nice. That's got to be the
0: most interesting interesting fungal we've had so far. It's got a story.
1: Yeah, it has amazing pop. Well, I haven't used it in about 10 years, but it had amazing, amazing pop to it.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Well, talk <laughs> us talk us through your path in, in baseball, you know, where, where you started getting into coaching and it led you to being a scout.
1: Uh, well, I'm originally from uh, Minnesota, and uh, let's see, I, I was going to school at uh, Wisconsin River Falls, get an undergraduate degree uh they needed a baseball coach and uh, they paid me 500 dollars to coach their baseball team they were getting ready to drop their baseball program so they gave it to me because they figured i'd screw it up and they could drop it <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> we did okay and uh we made them actually go title nine and hire a softball coach and a program because the
2: the program did all right oh that's awesome coach, i, I want to follow up that you coached for quite some time there in in Normandale at the community college there in Minnesota. And uh, we know that you're now in the Pacific Northwest. You spent some time at UW and WSU. Um, How did you say see a lot of similarities in that time there in Minnesota and and moving over to the Pacific Northwest? Um, Was there some differences in preparation? Was there a lot of similarities? I mean, I know that I checked in the weather there in Bloomington this morning It's 21 degrees and partly sunny. So, (laughs) you know, it's a little bit cooler. Um, but yeah, how did you uh, go about your daily routine of of preparation for a practice?
1: Yeah. In in Minnesota at the time we were, we would schedule games for early April and we'd be lucky if we played them. And so that was the, the most dramatic thing that was different. It was all indoor work all the time. Uh, so, which you know made you become more skill focused um, so you know smaller gyms you're not running full team practices that type of thing So it was a lot about individual work and skills And then when I came out to Washington uh, just to be outside in January was amazing I was out there in shirt sleeves and everybody thought I was crazy
2: yeah.
3: so, but that what was, was that great. what was that transition like going from, you know, what was your first job in the Northwest? What brought you out here? And, and how did you end up uh, at Washington and that first big, big job that you end up getting?
1: Uh, yeah, the first job was at Washington. Uh, Knudsen had hired me. Ken Knudsen was the head guy. He had just gotten the job and uh, he wanted somebody that had head coaching experience. Uh, he hadn't been a head coach before. And so that was the, uh, the thing he was looking for. I had met him at the National Coaches Convention uh, and, uh, that was the connection. So he interviewed me, brought me out and, and hired me on the spot. So it was, uh, it was stunning at the time. I didn't think I'd ever move from Minnesota.
3: Yeah. We talked so much about connections with a lot of people we've had on and, and just how important that is to, to network and, and especially within coaching, um, you know, the ABCA I think has grown significantly. Now you get six, 7,000, coaches in the same room was it was it different back then talk about that networking for you and, and how important that's been for you not only in your career um but also for doing your job now
1: yeah that w- that was probably the biggest thing was the networking at the national convention you know was the time before social media and, and where you could self-promote and, and do those things and so it was harder to move on to move out you didn't think you're gonna you know, ever go to a a warm weather place, for example, from Minnesota, just that just didn't happen. Uh, You know, so it was uh, it was surprising that you'd get any kind of opportunity. You thought you'd end up from Normandale and be lucky to be an assistant coach at University of Minnesota someday. That was that was kind of the career path. And so to go out here was uh, shocking, but it was just luck and circumstance as much as anything the program they dropped their baseball program uh, two years after i left wow and i knew they were going to do it and so i was lucky to get out otherwise i'd be teaching aerobics right now <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: nothing wrong with that
3: no no uh, uh,
2: there's a there seems to be a good set of skill set there you know doing that yeah, i know coach you mentioned about in your preparation you talked about you guys focused a lot of stuff indoors in skill set What were some of those things that you guys did? I know here in Eastern Washington, we don't have to deal with much on, uh, you know, having to go indoors, but there's times where we've had to do that. Um, I know on the west side of the state, there seems to be a lot more rain. There's a lot more times where coaches have to do that. What what were some of those drills that you guys were able to do so that by the time you took the field, you guys were ready to go?
1: You know, it'd probably be surprising, but the biggest focus was just the ability to play catch well. That, that was the, the number one thing that you tried to accomplish inside, especially because of the rebounds off all the gym walls and <laughs> uh, that type of thing. But, but if you could have a, a nice, quiet, air-free catch session, that was something. You know, the foundation of defensive baseball is just the ability to play catch. And so that, that was the prime focus first and foremost. And then after that, it was just all the little things for position to position double play feeds, did a lot of the Doyle brother drills at the time, which were great drills for indoor baseball, you know, three man, double play drills, that type of thing.
3: Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of uh, what makes us kind of unique in this Northwest area and, and Jason kind of alluded to it is being indoors so much in, in varying spaces, um, varying locations, it requires us to be really, really creative you know and 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 i think it makes us better coaches to you know do things a little bit differently and think about new drills and come to new solutions and 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 you know hypotheses just by by going through some of that implementation and creation of stuff in the indoor setting and if it doesn't work out at the end of the day you know guys still got a good workout you go back to the drawing board um and then try something out you know different at the end there but do you think that that you know the reason you had some of those limitations made you a better and more creative coach
1: yeah, I, I remember one of the first clinics I went to. I forget the guy's name, but he was an infield coach from Iowa, and uh, he said all he needed was a closet and a baseball <laughs> to teach infield play. Mm. And, and I took that to heart. I mean, we just used everything we had. We, you know, if we had a wall in front of us, we could have infield practice. You know, and, and so we just used whatever whatever was available, and then you had to be creative to keep guys busy. And then just try to be short and quick and, you know, have high repetitions and be done with it as, as soon as possible. So everything was uh, counted. Everything was measured. And, you know, that was the, the way we went after it. You know, 15 chances. You caught all 15. Good day.
0: The the measured part, that's got to be a, a, just my brainstorming. It's got to be key because I know our biggest thing is trying to keep the high school kids uh, – excited when there's a foot of snow outside and we're playing baseball. And and I, I, that's – so what were some of the things that you guys would measure? Would you make competitions out of it? Would it be – just what were some of the things you guys would do?
1: Yeah, it was it was measured with the – and then, you know, leaderboards. Uh, batting practice today, 15 swings, 15 hard hits. Nice. You know, that type of thing. And so it gave guys an idea, an area where they needed
2: to improve. Coach, I, I know you spent some time over in the Netherlands. Um, you know, I had the opportunity later in my career to play baseball down in South America for about three to four months. You know, did, what what did you see with the similarities of what you hear, see here in the States to overseas and the differences? I know in uh, Venezuela their ultimate goal is to come to America and make millions of dollars. And, you know, every player and every young child, boy that is, uh, you know, basically dreams of coming and playing professional ball. Did you see where guys in Netherlands were a little bit more committed to the game? Was it a little bit more relaxed? Was it, was it very similar in your time there spent overseas? You know,
1: it was all over the place. The team I played on, uh, everybody was from uh, the Dutch islands of Aruba or Curacao. Wow. And they were more American than, you know, the Dutch, uh, in terms of their baseball. It was a more aggressive, you know, power type of game. The Dutch were more uh, controlled, you know. They emphasized a lot of the team stuff and the skills, but they just weren't caught up to the guys from the islands yet. So the best players in the country were on my team. Uh, One guy looked like Tony Perez, and, you know, it was was that that type of player. So, yeah, actually uh, Andrew Jones from the Braves, his Mm -hmm. uh, uncle was on my team. Oh wow. oh, wow. That's cool.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's neat. Well, mm-hmm. that's something we always, we correlate baseball back to life experiences. That had to have been a great experience just to be able to go, go across season and do that.
1: Yeah, it was, but it kind of put maturity on hold for a while, but yeah, it, <laughs> it, it sure was. It was, it was a great situation because they paid for everything and, and took care of you. And, and then I ended up starting coaching there as well. So I ended up being a player coach my, my last year I called the game, I played center field and I called all the pitches from center field.
0: <laughs> oh, that's
2: awesome. That's cool. Yeah. Wow.
3: Talk about your, uh, your time with, with USA baseball. How did it, how did it come about that you got a chance to, to work with that? And who what was what opened that door to that experience? And, you know, talk about that, the the tournaments you got to play in. I think a silver medal at a, at a tournament, um, back there talking about that experience you're starting those things
1: yeah the uh the, they started off they had like baseball festivals at the time it was the precursor to the the olympic movement and and all that and, and so they were having uh you know sports festivals uh one was in uh, minneapolis the first one and that's why they they hooked me up because they needed somebody to help coach hit fungos that type of thing so that was kind of the connection uh Uh, I helped a guy, a division two coach. He needed some players. I sent him two of my players from my community college. They won the national championship. And so he decided that I should be involved. And that was just an action. We ended up in, I think, Boise the next year where I was assistant coach and uh, we had guys like, uh, gosh, uh, AJ Hinch was there, you know? Uh, yeah. Tori, uh, Tori Hunter was one of the players. Wow. Um, so it was, just a, it was an exposure to a great group of players, it, which really helped as far as evaluation and that type of thing. Became the head coach the, the following year uh, and everything was in Los Angeles. And we actually, I think we actually cut Nomar Garcia par at the cup, keep a different guy, which was one of the, probably the glaring mistakes, but we had Avrod on the team. Wow. And again, AJ Hinch was a two-year guy. Uh, so it it was, it was a good deal. So what was it like coaching? I mean,
0: obviously talent like that, I mean, hall of fame talent and and long MLB careers, but just coaching guys that young that had that potential. Was was that a, it was really,
1: yeah, it wasn't really any different. It was just more skilled as much as anything. Okay. But, uh, A-Rod at the time was 16 his first year with us. And, uh, you know, he, he wanted to come to my junior college and play baseball is what he told me. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> i That's mean cool. he didn't realize what i'm saying is he didn't realize how good he was yeah you know and at the time i was a, a part-time scout for the mets at the same time and i had to do reports and i turned in a glory report on a rod and i was scared to death to turn it in because i was calling him you know like the best player in the country i didn't know <laughs> right uh but after it all came to fruition and it became okay this is the best guy in the country so maybe I, I know what I'm doing a little bit so that helped me with my confidence my evaluations
0: yeah I bet that helped quite a bit that's a that's a pretty cool story
3: <laughs> what uh, what made those guys special I mean you know the, the top talents you know I, I know they're higher talented player but you know maybe they're whether it's their mental makeup their preparation um, the way they carried themselves what what made those type of players, Elite in your eyes.
1: The, the really talented guys, uh, they were all talented, but the really good ones like Blake A-Rod worked harder than the other guys. Uh, that was the, the thing that stood out about Alex was that we would be done with our two-and-a-half-hour practice, and then he would go run sprints on his own. I mean, he, he was more driven than the other kids. So uh, Preston Wilson, I don't know if you remember Preston, he was on the team. He was the same guy. He was really, really driven to to succeed. Uh, but they were all talented. But the guys that made it were probably the most focused, most driven.
3: We talk about that from a team culture standpoint. You see it thrown out there a lot. You know, some of the best teams, their best players are the hardest workers within their. You know, you know a lot of times you see that there's the third string guy that's pushing the you know the starter, and he works harder than him you know, from a culture standpoint, and maybe you've experienced this too at, you know, some of those better teams you had at Washington and Wazoo, um, those top end guys on a, on a good team are the hardest workers of of anyone that's around.
1: Right. Right. And it just helps your team culture so much.
3: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We're fortunate to have some guys that do that at our place. And, and I'm sure, you know, Jason's had some great players that come his way and, and Eric's moved some on to college now and, you know, I, I know collectively we've talked about this before is, you know, when you get those guys really, really working, um, you know, your whole team just kind of leads and follows from there.
2: Coach, did you see those guys more as like a, a type A, you know, if you were to put them in, in a business world sector, you know, a take away baseball, would you see them more as a type A personality? Those guys are more driven. I mean, and from our experience, we, the guys that we've had in our programs or they just take the bull by the horns and take the, in the role of leadership. They call the meetings, you know, if we're down or something's not going right. They'll call, you know, right in the midst of practice, get everybody come in here, you know, and they'll kind of have a little talk of focus. You know, Do, did you see those kind of guys that were, you know, real driven like A-Rod or are they more of a type A personality? Um,
1: not so much A-Rod Preston Wilson was for sure. I okay. mean, he was, he was, that type of guy, uh, A. Rod just wanted everybody to like him as, as much as anything. he was just a really really nice guy, yeah. you know? And he was helpful and every so he was the helper with all the teammates. You know, you need somebody to do toss. A. Rod was there with you. You know, I'm watching wow. He was the guy that was going to partner up with you. But yeah. uh, Preston Wilson was more of the type of take charge. This is what we're doing today
3: type of guy. That's cool. Coach, let's pivot a little bit. Let's, uh, let's dive into recruiting and, and, and scouting and mm-hmm. you know, okay. basically your day-to-day. And <laughs> you know, a lot of what we do at the college level is you know, trying to find great players or good players and make them into great players. Um, wh- what are some of the key kind of characteristics? You know, take out, take out the baseball side of things, but what are some of the key char- characteristics you look for um when you're evaluating that top talent makeup stuff
1: well makeup stuff makeup is is kind of a slippery slope for me I mean the guy that throws 95 is usually considered to have better makeup than the guy throwing 75 and so uh, you know that's not always the case but I think makeup is just uh the reaction to adversity as much as anything you know how do they handle striking out or you know nobody likes it but they deal with their parents after the game uh i actually didn't recruit a guy because i used to watch him make his dad he'd make his dad carry his bag after the game he'd throw it on the ground and have his dad pick it up for him you know so you know so th- those type of things were kind of what you look for and i wasn't always right about it for sure but uh the biggest thing i think about recruiting is just to establish a, a profile of what you're looking for as a program that's uh Thing, I think that uh, what, what I see a lot of schools don't do, though, so they are a contact orientated school and they recruit power hitters. And then after two years, they don't hit very well. They don't do very well in that program. And then everybody says what happened to that guy. Right. And so I think you need to find guys that fit your culture, the guys that, that uh, you know, fit what you're trying to do. So that's that's the biggest thing.
3: Yeah, fit is such a big word, you know, and and it works both ends, right? I mean, that you know, fit with the school, with with the academics, with with some of that makeup stuff. You know, if 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 the kid has some, some glaring issues, those things are going to continue, um, whether it being self centered or whatnot. But what what was kind of that at, at Washington? You, you had some top recruiting classes there, and you guys put up some pretty prodigious um, offensive numbers. Uh, what was what was that fit dynamic there you know what was the offense you type you 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 ran there and and the type of player you looked to fit that op- offense and maybe some of the characteristics that those hitters had that um you recruited and or developed once they got there
1: you know i've always considered that the best players are usually the most aggressive and that, that was the the first thing we looked for was have some type of aggression on the field. Uh, and then hitter-wise, we wanted guys that would put the ball in the air and guys that could manage the strike zone. Uh, that was always the goal. We didn't always do well with it, but that's what we thought we were trying to do. So, But really, we were, a, you know, a launch angle, exit velocity, all that stuff. That's what we were doing.
3: Yeah, it's looking for that intent, right? I mean, intent's a big word. And, you know, mm-hmm. the guys that have great intent at the plate, if he gets that 0-0 fastball or the 2-0 fastball, is he – you know, putting a good swing off, or is he tracking it in and then nodding his head afterwards after it just got called for a strike down the middle? Um, but yeah, having that having that intent not only to, you know, do damage in account, you know, swing decision wise, but also to take off a a really comfortable swing, you know, and 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 that's uh, it's hard to find sometimes. I I think I think it's you struggle to find that balance between um, over aggressive and too selective, you know, and I think you know, our hitting coach at at uh, St. Martin's is, is kind of coined the term selective aggressiveness is kind of what we go after. Um, but, you know, going to a game looking at a hitter, what, what kind of, uh, you know, what was maybe a specific thing you looked at within an at bat um, for that guy, or maybe the collective of at bats?
1: Yeah. The, the first thing would probably vision. That was probably the number one thing and it still is the number one thing. It just, uh you know, hitting is about what you swing at and what you don't swing at,
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and that's all about vision. People talk about timing and rhythm and balance and all that. Well, that's all vision. And and, and so and so that's the thing you look for. The pitcher throws a, a a fastball up and into the guy and he just turns and watches it goes by or does he fall back on the ground, mm-hmm. you know, thinking it's going to hit him. Does he know where the ball is? So uh, that's a a big part and then just consistency of contact is an example of vision. Do you have any
3: key stories from your time? Um, You know, best recruiting stories. We asked this to Swenson last last episode that we did. Anything specific where maybe a guy fell into your lap or, um, you know, weren't expecting to see something you know, maybe said no on a guy, ended up being good. What, what are some of those best stories that you got for us?
1: What did Swanson say? <laughs>
3: <laughs> he talked about he talked about uh turning a kid down at camp. You know, they, they thought he was a third baseman, he wasn't doing much, wanted to pitch. They didn't have an opportunity for him to pitch at the camp, and then he came in and he's throwing 90 mile an hour bowling balls.
1: <laughs> yeah, so oh, Greg's a good recruiter. Um probably the I don't know. The thing that stands out was probably recruiting uh, uh, You know, I don't know if people believe me, but I actually I saw him throw uh, two hitters, and I got in my car and called up Knutson and said, "Give him whatever he wants." <laughs> so the, I was at Bannerwood. You know how you're underneath the stadium at Bannerwood. Yep, yep. Walk in, I look up, and this guy throws a curveball, on my knees buckle. <laughs> and I was like, "Holy cow! I've never seen anybody like it." <clears throat> And I, you know, and that's one of the things you look for recruiting wise, is you look for guys that are unique and different that think do things that you've never seen before. And you know, that that was in a nutshell. So when I went back to watch them later on, uh it was like watching uh, it was like watching Eddie Feyner, if you remember the king in his court. The guy would play softball, it'd be a pitcher, a catcher, a shortstop. That's and a first baseman, that's all he had. And that was really all that Tim needed. He just needed somebody to get the jam shot ground ball and the the occasional pop-up. And he just struck everybody else out. It was just such an easy decision to recruit him.
3: What was the recruiting process like for him? Did you have much competition? Did you have to fight him off for you first in the door to help you out?
1: Well, I hate hate to bash the Mariners because I worked for him, but uh, the Mariners were running area codes at the time, and uh, they thought he was too small to be a prospect. Mm. So he didn't make the team. And so there was Mm. less competition was basically us and Washington state. And, uh, when we were in the house, uh, was a great recruiter and he had a connection with uh, Chris Linscombe, Tim's dad, had a connection about pitching, similar philosophy. And so it it was just a slam dunk for us because we were just, we were going to leave him alone, let him keep on doing what he was doing. And I think the other teams uh, came in and said how they were going to fix his mechanics.
3: So, you know, we said we love his mechanics. <laughs> what were some more of those in-house, do you have, did you guys do a lot of in-home visits back then in the days? Anything, uh, I don't know, anything uncomfortable? Anything kind of weird or different or quirky? Some stuff you had to battle in those? <laughs> oh, I, you, you know, don't have to name names either.
1: Yeah, no. I mean, <laughs> was real good. We did a lot of, <clears throat> we did, you know, constant stream of home visits. We worked hard at recruiting. Canoeson was great in the home, <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you'd go in, into a house and the first question that the kid would ask you was be the transfer rule, you know, oh. you know, those kind of things would stand out, uh, you know, and then we let him go to Portland and then he transferred after a year, <laughs> <laughs> that type of thing. But most of the things are really positive, you know, parents love their kids. Uh, most baseball players are, are great people, the good people. So there wasn't a lot of bad things or negative things about home visits at all. It, it, was, it was fun to do. So the, our home visit was uh, probably about 20 minutes about uh, University of Washington baseball and probably about an hour about professional baseball and why you should go to college.
2: Mm-hmm. Hey, Banter fans, this is Anthony Claggett from Washington State University. You are listening to the PNW Fungo Banter podcast. Go, Cougs.
3: Has any of that changed now? Uh, you know, I, I'm assuming you still make in home visits with some of those top area talented kids. Is that dynamic different from a college setting as it is from a pro setting now?
1: Yeah, it's a little bit different. Uh, but it, the, the similar thing is that we never tried to talk anybody into anything that, you know, this is what you should do or, you know, that type of thing. It's the same with professional baseball. YOU KNOW, WE'RE NOT REALLY CONCERNED. IF THEY WANT TO GO TO SCHOOL, GREAT. WE'LL TRY ANOTHER CRACK AT THEM IN THREE YEARS. AND IF THEY WANT TO SIGN, THAT'S FINE. WE JUST WANT TO KNOW. And SO I THINK THAT'S THE ATTITUDE YOU TAKE PROFESSIONALLY IS JUST GET THE INFORMATION, SHOW THEM WHAT YOU HAVE. YOU KNOW, THIS IS, is WHAT THE FUTURE IS GOING TO LOOK LIKE. YOU PAINT A NICE PICTURE ABOUT THE FUTURE. THIS IS WHAT YOU'RE GOING TO DO. THIS IS WHERE YOU'RE GOING TO GO. AND YOU KIND OF GO WITH IT. it it's IT'S FUN TO DO.
3: Seen a a good rash, you know, and I I guess really recently of some of those local top, top talented kids leaving, leaving the area. Um, And obviously it takes you from a a scout somewhat away from that. You're going to have your early reports that you maybe contribute to down the line. But what what would you say to a kid locally, a top level talent kid um, about the offerings locally that have been you know, from a national setting with, with the Beavers run and, and, you know, the Huskies getting there recently, the Cougars are on the up and up um, Oregon, hanging there as well. Um, what would you, what would you say to that local kid that that maybe wants to go away and, and, you know, do you advise now for kids to stay local?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think everything that a kid wants is here. And you, as well as the first thing to consider about recruiting is what kind of education and if, You weren't playing baseball what school would you go to Mm -hmm. you know and and they'll tell you well i'd go to washington state or you know oregon state or whatever you know because i'm a local guy so what's wrong with going there to play baseball there's nothing that you're going to get outside of some nicer weather to go to arizona arizona state than you are going to washington state or washington you know and then if you want success on a national level it's here uh you know so you've got everything that you possibly could want here. Some kids just want to get away and, mm-hmm. and you know, but I think as a scout, I would prefer that everybody stays in the Northwest. Yep. If we don't sign them, yeah. you know, that's fine. And I'd still want them to be here. We have a lot of good players, but we don't have that many good players.
0: Do you see a difference of players that do stay in the Northwest compared to other parts of the country?
1: The. Uh, Traditionally, I'd say that the the Northwest kids will probably get better uh, as they play, more so than the the Southern California guy, for example. They're usually not quite as skilled. They haven't played quite as much. The competition that they've played against maybe hasn't been as good, uh, and so they have a much more – they have a higher ceiling, more room for improvement.
0: That's great. I know we've had that conversation with a few guys. that just, you know, the skill levels are good because we have so much more time in – inside working on this stuff. And, and once we get out and let the, the kids get to play more and get to see them come out of their shell, that's, that's nice. So talk to the young coach that's listening right now. What are some of the advice that you have to give the guys that are fresh into college baseball and they're recruiting? Like what, what are some of the best things and traits that the things that you've learned over the time advice for them young guys?
1: <laughs> well, recruiting, you know, like I said, I think first thing is you need to have a profile Right. And and recruiting is just hard work. You don't do it every day. You're not going to be very good at it. Uh, I remember Bobo Brayton used to say, it's like shaving. If you didn't, you didn't do it every day. You didn't look good. (laughs) And uh, and that's a nice way to think. Yeah. Uh, I think you, you just can't deny tools. You just have to look for tools. If you can, every guy you recruit has one average tools. You're in a good spot. If you think you can coach and develop a little bit. You know, you get an average runner, you can teach them to do some other things. And so it depends on your level of baseball. Obviously, if I'm a D2 guy, I'm trying to get two average tools with every guy, you know, and so that type of thing. Uh, But I think probably (laughs) this might be sound silly, but probably the most important thing is every time you talk to them, ask them to commit. (laughs) It's like, uh, I was listening to a sales commercial by some book. Right. And they're talking about, well, teach you. how many guys will ask for a sale, and never ask for the person to actually buy the product? Mm-hmm. And, and that was the thing about recruiting is I would talk to a kid and he'd say, he's talking to so and so. And I'd say, have they asked you to commit? And he'd say, no. <laughs> you know, so why are they talking to you? Every time you talk to somebody, no matter what, say, are you ready to commit? And, and sometimes it's the first phone call and you got them already.
3: Do you ever give a timeline for those commitments or you always just ask for them to commit every single call that you were on?
1: Uh, no, I, d- I didn't do a lot of timelines. Some people did, and that was fine. It's just a different way of doing it. You mm-hmm. Just have to do it where it fits your personality. But you know, it's all different now Ray Kelly. I mean, everybody's just recruiting and committing everybody just so you can have them. So, mm-hmm. and it was a different situation at the time with the scholarships and that.
3: Well, we talked to Swenny about this too, and, and, and uh, other coaches we've had on as well, but what's, what's your take in general of the timing of commitments? You know, obviously in today's age, that 16 year old Alex Rodriguez would have an offer from every single school in the entire country. Um, But what's your take on the state of, of, of recruiting right now and, and how it's gotten a little bit younger? Um, or maybe some advice you have if, if you were an administrator at the NCA level, whether you keep it the same or do something different, what, what's kind of your general take of where things are at right now?
1: I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I mean, if it's your dream school and you want to commit when you're 12 years old, go ahead. Right. But you just have to realize the consequences that you can cut loose, you know, two weeks before your signing period, mm-hmm. you know, mom and dad have already got all the gear, you know? <laughs> You know. Yeah. So I don't think there's anything really wrong with it. Uh, you know, we started doing it. It started in women's soccer. Women's were was the first one to start committing, you know, the younger classes and then it moved on to the other sports from there. Uh, uh, Coach Meg's uh, first two recruiting classes were mostly the recruit- recruiting classes we had put together and, and you know, he kept them together and got them, obviously, but that was just the way it was going. So, it's just you just got to play with the, the playing field the way it is, you know. And so, so everybody wants to recruit when they're 13, go ask
3: them. Mm. So, so takeaway there is that, that, that parents should keep the tags on their clothes, in case <laughs> the receipts.
1: They, <laughs> and they should realize that, you know, the way it is, they can get cut loose, they can cut them loose, you can decommit, they can decommit you. As long as you go into it, you know what's going to happen or could happen,
0: and you're fine. Well, Coach, let's jump into the thing stretch portion of our podcast and uh, a portion I've been really excited to talk about because, you know, I, like we said, off the air, I was fortunate enough to be able to spend the weekend in Pullman when you guys did a coaches clinic, uh, hands-on stuff. But I want to dive into hitting uh, from the coach's perspective. Overall, what's their general philosophy when you're teaching hitters and hands-on with the guys?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, again, I, I think hitting is all about what you swing at and what you don't swing at. And I think that should be the, the primary focus. Uh, there's a lot of different swings that get it done. Uh, I think when I was a bad coach, it would be too much concentration on swing mechanics and not enough on approach. And when I was a better coach, I think we were better at, at our approach. Uh, it, it doesn't matter if the guy has a pretty swing or, or you know or an ugly swing, it really doesn't matter. It's nice if they're all really smooth and fast and balanced and all that. But at the end of the day, it's it's all about getting hits and making solid contact. So I would say the, the thing I'd always be working on would be management of the strike zone, who controls the strike zone and who doesn't. And so every drill should have something to do with that. Uh, the Royals recently, we dropped uh, front toss. We don't We don't let our guys play front toss right? It's too easy. It doesn't have any correlation to the game. And so I would try to do as many difficult things as possible, which is always difficult as a coach because you think also you're not doing very well. Nobody's hitting anything. Mm-hmm. And you think, oh gosh, I, I'm, I'm really doing a lousy job coaching. But you are making them better if you put <clears> them <throat> in more difficult situations.
0: That's so true. Because so I know, like, it, it, for us the last couple of years, we would be getting ready for Jason at Tri-Cities Prep and Mercado throwing 90, That was, was like going to the moon for my guys at Kittitas. And then we would have to try to dial it back for the teams that weren't throwing, you know, maybe 60 or 70. And I, I, it screwed us up doing that, and I regret that because we dropped a game after playing them because of that. And I regret that yeah, decision. Probably
1: the, the, the best coach in Northwest history has probably been Ed Chef. Right. And, and Ed was all about difficult, hard, you know, really. You know, I mean, they would put the pitching machine up on a box so you had an and throw 90 mile sliders at you and say, go get them. Right. And they weren't working about how your swing was. However, you, you had to figure out your swing so you could hit that pitch. And, and I think that's the way to go.
0: So, what are some of the things? You know, there's all this brand-new technology out there, and and it's all great, and then there's lots of good stuff to hitting. But what are some of the old-school, low-budget drills or props that you would use, just something that might have just caught your eye and and was a big tool for your hitters?
1: Well, uh, you know, we (laughs) we were doing launch angle. We would set the camera up right next to the guy throwing batting practice. Right, and then we we called it matching angles, where the angle of your your eyes, your shoulders, your bat all had to match up for you to hit a, a solid line drive. Well, that's become launch angle, basically. That's what that is. Right, you had to match that up, and so we we're doing that just with a, a regular video camera. Uh, we are doing exit velocity, uh, hitting balls off the tee, and we weren't doing it. We were just doing it to make sure that what we were teaching was right and proper. That guys were actually getting better. So I was having guys that would go 110 with a wood bat off a tee, you know, at my radar gun. Those were my best hitters, uh, you know, at, at the same time. So th- that was the kind of thing. But that was – it was all about measuring all that all the time, you know.
0: I think you just solved all the Twitter uh... – rants and raves and fights that people have had about launch angle no launch angle because it's it's something that we brought up and and Donegal fergus talked it's a measurement that we've been using for years guys it's not yeah that was, that, a lot of people just got the on twitter that's great
1: <laughs> yeah 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 you know, fergie did a great job with it i mean he made a big impact with the uh, you know the huskies and their program you know and just doing the the same stuff that everybody else was doing he just did it a little bit better
3: where would you start with a guy you get a hitter in there day one fall practice what's kind of that foundation of a new hitter the the things that you'd start on I know you're tracking some of these things but you throw them right in the fire or is there a slower progression that you had to get them up to that level that you wanted them at
1: well I think you know everybody's different and everybody's got a different swing and so I think the programs need to be individual Uh, you can, you know, split it up your batting practice where these are the run producers. These are the on base guys, that type of thing. Uh, but you know, a lot of times guys are resentful about that. If you ask a hitter, what type of hitter you are, they're all going to tell you, they're a gap to gap guy with power, every single guy, and and they're just not right. So the first thing is probably to get them to realize who they are and how to be successful at what they're, they're doing. If you can do that, and then you got a, a good foundation. The, the second thing would just be to put their eyes and their head in a good position to hit that, and then, you know, uh, get your eyes behind the baseball. You see those really tall guys would stand up really straight, right? They can't tell you if the pitch is six inches off the ground or a foot off the ground when it's down and away, just because of the position of their eyes and their head. So that would be the first thing I, I would look for is just where the, where's their head, where are their eyes, are they staying behind the baseball good?
3: What, what specifically would you do? Say you got that tall hitter, you know, what what's the adjustment that you make for that guy to get him his eyes on plane?
1: Um, well, you hate to force something on it, but uh, if you remember like Kevin Euclid, his style, it's kind of erect and open, you step into the plate a little bit, and then he does a big upper body tilt, and puts his eyes right behind the baseball. That's where you want to get to. Some guys start there. Uh, and some guys have to get there. So the tall guy, I would try to get him either to bend over a little bit to cover the zone better, or I would do a, a kind of a Kevin
3: Euclid thing with him. Yeah. A.J. Guerrero does that well. Yeah, he
2: does. He does. Mm-hmm. He's a special one, mm-hmm. one to watch. You know, Coach, that's, that's, that's really good because in, in the game of golf, they say that about putting. In order to read the gra- the gra- um, the grade on the green, you kind of have to get yourself behind the ball. You know, and, of course – I'm not the greatest golfer, you know, and <laughs> I enjoy being out, but I've, you know, I've learned, you know, with the experience of playing with better guys, you know, of the game and picking that up has definitely improved my game. So I'm not shooting uh, over a hundred every each week I go out, but, you uh-huh. know, I, I think about like Kyle Lewis for the Mariners. you know, that was one of his big thing of, uh, you know, w- what would made him that great of a hitter was, is his discipline at the plate um, his eye awareness of the ball what would you tell maybe that high school coach, you know, in order to get, you know, because, uh, you know, we don't have all the, the technology or the budgets and those kind of things. Uh, even just on the high school side of it, what drills could you say to a high school coach or even to a player that's home right now with everything kind of going on with, you know, in preparation of this upcoming 2021 season to develop more of an eye awareness? Um, what kind of drills would that be?
1: Well, that, that's the the hard thing, right? The, mm-hmm. the, is the, is the drills with it, the the virtual reality stuff that people are doing, the the sports sense stuff. You know, that's probably the new frontier. I think that's the best part. But I, first thing would be to get your eyes checked. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it really would. But that, that's hard too because there's yeah. a difference between visual acuity and and just the ability to do tracking or, or that type of thing. So you. If you can get somebody that can actually have a sports background to test people's eyes, that will tell you quite a bit. Wow. The, the year I was at Washington State, half our team was was blind. <laughs> they were, and they were all the, the really good athletes that you thought, gosh, this guy should really be a good hitter, and, and they just couldn't see it. We brought in an eye specialist, and he said it was the worst group he's ever seen. <laughs> there, there's okay. a lot
0: to be said about that, because I- – I my last year playing college baseball, I couldn't see a ground ball coming at me. And I went back for the alumni game the following year with glasses on and it was like a miracle. (laughs) I could I could see the ball again.
2: (laughs) We we had a a freshman at prep had that same situation and you know he just he had the foot speed and but he just wasn't quite getting out of the ball and his plate approach was just sloppy and I asked him, I said, Have you had your ice checks? And he was no, I haven't, you know, and how long has it been? You know, I don't think I've ever had my eyes check. And, of course, you know, as a high school freshman, you know, you're, you're going to have a little bit of a fight because, you know, you think you know all. And so we're, we're going week after week here. And I am like, Bayless, you're not getting any better, bud. I mean, have you got that appointment? And eventually one day out of the blue he says, hey, coach, I can't be at practice. I said, what's up? And he goes, oh, I got an eye exam. I said, all right. He goes in. Of course, the doctor said right off the bat, he says, man, you need glasses. You're, <laughs> how are you even playing baseball? <laughs> Comes mm-hmm. back with the glasses about uh, a couple of days later and total change to the player. Absolutely mm-hmm. changes that player, you know. So that's yeah. true. That's good.
1: Yeah, you know, the eye specialist we brought in, he had us doing the the little <laughs> wiffle ball drills, you know. And sometimes it was just a matter of just, you know, putting your hand out and catching the ball like a swing that type of thing and trying to increase the difficulty and the speed of everything was a, was a big deal. And then with the pitching machine, it was to after they get comfortable with their mechanics, to crank it up as fast as it will go, you know, just to get used, just get used to the speed and the tracking ability of something going, you know, 95 miles an hour. And and that's what helps you, I think.
3: Is there anything that you would chart in your practice to, identify guys that had a good zone awareness or maybe some feedback immediate that they could do? What, what are some of those things that you would uh, keep, keep watch of?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, I was doing my cone drill. <laughs> so uh, that was probably the, the big thing that we would do. There was, you know, so we would set up the, the cone. We'd set up a traffic cone in the middle of the plate on the long skinny ones and you had to stay off one half of it and you had to hit the other half of it. And and that was your divider for it. And you could move that around, right? Where also we're eliminating the uh, the outside corner, we're going to eliminate the inside corner, and that would tie into your approach. Mm-hmm. And so, if you had that approach where you're got to go away against some soft toss and lefty, you would just cut out the inner half of the of the plate with this cone, and then that's what you'd practice. But as as far as measuring in that, then we just I just never
3: did much of that. Good, bad, plus, minus, yeah. Mm-hmm. What, how far out would you put that cone? At? I know there's different opinions in that decision-making process of of hitting. You've seen those graphs and charts about when you're deciding to swing. Where, where do you think it's most important for a hitter to to make that decision at?
1: We, we were putting it out about probably five six feet out in front of the hitter, just so it'd be out of his way, and so it, it just so you'd have some time for the the pitch recognition.
0: Yep, I think that's probably where I went wrong when we did the drill. It was probably too close to the hitter when you ricocheted the ball off of it, and got him in the, uh, in the, you in know, the face there. Got to wear but, a helmet, that's for sure. That's right. But I, I love that drill. I was, I was fortunate. The first thing I did when I got back from that weekend was ask the guy that works for the city of Ellensburg, hey, can I get one of those
3: cones?" <laughs> and deliver it out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. What's what's your uh, what's your feeling on approach? You know, that kind of that general approach for a hitter. I I, I kind of get a sense that based on what you've talked about, it's it's probably variable based on hitter, based on the type of hitter he is, what he's looking for. Um, but what is that baseline approach for you and and how that varies from a, a plus count for a hitter and, and maybe a behind count? What, what what did you teach for for guys to look for um, in, in maybe a specific location or specific pitch in different counts? Usually
1: the, the best guys are oppo gap guys. Usually they're the best hitters. The guys that try to take the fastball into the opposite gap – then they have the ability to adjust to something slower that's coming in on them. Right. So the guy throws you a, a slow breaking ball. You also you turn on and you pull it because you're looking to hit the fastball at the elbow cap. So I would think that'd be, if I didn't have an approach, that would be the one I would teach. And then after that, I think you just kind of go with what the guy's strength is. I, I had one hitter at Washington state. His approach was he couldn't swing at anything that he couldn't hit out of the ballpark. Hmm. All right, that, that was the approach. And that really worked for me, He ended up having a great year, you know, just, just because of that, rather than trying to everything, swing at everything, you know. And then two-strike approach, I, I, I'm not a big believer in changing things. I, I think you just kind of – you should have the same swing. I don't think I should have two different swings, for example, you know, but I think I should be more aware of, of trying to defend the outer half uh, when I have two strikes.
0: That That's a great – Wormhole to go down because we haven't talked about, a lot about that yet on the podcast. But two strike hitting, is there? Was it more of a teaching the mentality to a guy?
1: Yeah, the the best way to hit with two strikes is not to get the two strikes, right? Right, hundred yeah. <laughs> yeah. percent. And so that's why you look for aggressiveness in your in your players. You know, the guy that doesn't take the two zero fastball, you know, that's that's the guy that's going to have successful. The other guys are going to strike out. Mm-hmm.
3: So, guy, so, you got a guy that's struggling with the uh, struggling with with that, you know, falling behind in counts or whatnot. You know, how, maybe something specific you did, whether his hit training, whether it's BP. How did you get a guy to be more aggressive? Was it, you know, really just prodding at him, taking things away? How do you how do you string up that aggressiveness to a to a passive hitter? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question the different players yeah personality
1: and makeup isn't it yeah yeah you know and then people overthink hitting too much you know and really it's it's about being aggressive and getting your barrel on the ball so there's too many uh hitting gurus too many guys that are just concentrating on their mechanics how do my swing look that type of thing and to get them out of that mindset where i don't care what your swing looks like i just care about what you swing at
0: yeah, absolutely. You know, and we're a small school, kid at test, and the guys that I'm coaching, are they're thinking about baseball three months out of the year. And when I finally realized that one, because you try to tell them these things and they look at you cross i the like, Coach, just let me go hit the ball. I'm like, oh, yeah, great. Go do that. Just go hit the ball and go hit it hard. And, and then, mm-hmm. yeah, that really evolved the way that we do things because it simplifies The Kids aren't overthinking it and then taking away the aggressiveness because of that.
1: Yeah. You got, you got 24 swings of bank practice today and you had 20 of them hard. Good job. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Absolutely.
2: Um, what would be some of those things that you would be looking at, you know, for a high school player, you know, who wants to get up into that professional realm and you know, what, what traits that make him separate himself from his peers? Um, you know, as you go out and, and see these, these different high school guys are out there, or even some of the kids that may be listening, too. We, we do also get some of these high school players are listening, right, you know, on our podcast. But what would, what would be some of the things you would say to them that could help separate them from their peers to maybe get more recognized if, you know, uh, chasing their dream of professional baseball? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh,
1: being more athletic, playing multiple sports is, is a good deal. But I, like I think you know, the, you know. Besides just the baseball skills and that type of thing, I think you're you're looking for good athletes, and then you're looking for smart guys. Smart guys have a chance to get better than dumb guys. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, that just made me smile. The multiple sport athlete thing. That that's something that's getting lost, and, and it hurts hurts to see that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's carryover not only in in your skills, but also in your ability to compete.
0: I noticed when we have a, and this is no knock on basketball players, but when we have a good group of wrestling kids playing baseball, the mentality and the toughness is, comes out so much because they've had to go through that grueling process. And that's something you can't learn being in, a, I mean, you can still be in the cage, but you don't learn that not competing for you know, the fall and the winter right. and how much more important it is for football. When I have football players, wrestlers, and good basketball players too, it's just it makes a baseball team so much better.
1: Mm Mm-hmm, yeah, no doubt. So, and then as a scout, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for athletes, always. Athletes have a chance to get better.
0: Do you guys ever go watch the other sports when you're on a guy?
1: Oh, yeah, all the time. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah, watch football battle. So, Malachi Knight, watch him play basketball last winter when there was still a season. So, you know, right away you knew what a good athlete he was.
3: Go well, back to the hitting a little bit. You talk about um, – there's different types of pitchers, right? You talked about the soft lefty. You got the tall righty. You know, you got the fastball slider guy. You got the four-pitch mix guy. It, did, did you classify or clarify different types of pitchers, um, whether it was in your scouting reports or or your training? You knew you had this Friday night ace or the Saturday guy, or whatever it is. Did you ever differentiate your training based on – you know the guys that you were going to be facing and, and how did you classify those different types of, of pitchers
1: Yeah well well when when I said was Washington state uh like Washington at the time with their pitching Kelly they were doing a great job but everything was away all the time they they just never ever came into you right and so so for the two weeks before we played them all we did was work on hitting the ball the other way mean, right? cuz you knew what you're getting they tried to make an adjustment but they weren't capable at the time of coming back inside, you know, cause they just had it. All right. And, and so, yeah, you got the soft toss and lefty, you got to look away. Most of the time uh, your thing is to look away, you know, that, that's the, the great thing. And then you talk to most of your hitters and they're going to tell you that they're looking in. Right. But that's, so that's where being smart comes into play, you know, to realize what this pitcher is doing. And then to make the adjustment on fly. A lot of times you have to make adjustment during your bat. The smart guys can do that.
3: Yeah, Coach Coach Brian Green mentioned that, you know, early on when we were doing this, um, that he was scouting more of the opposing pitching coach than he was the opposing players, just to try to find tendencies within that staff or, or that specific coach. If most are calling pitches still at that collegiate level of, you know, what do they like to go to in tough situations and do they cross count and those type of things? Is, is that pretty much the, the same that you had back in that day as you had, you knew different coaches and kind of their mm-hmm. styles and what they were trying to do?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, the, a lot of the California schools, especially they, they were all going pitching backwards. They were, they were all doing that. Uh, UCLA with, with Savage, great pitching coach, great game caller. You know if you hit something you never got it again mm-hmm. you know that type of thing you had to be aware of that if you hit that breaking ball you weren't going to get another breaking ball until maybe the third game of the, the series mm. um, and, and so you have to pay attention to what the pitching coach is doing with everything getting called from the bench that's that's a great way to do it just yeah you know, scout the coach
3: would you would you tell your hitters in that situation if if you hit a curveball you say you hit a curveball for a double would you explicitly tell them next time to look for something different or give them a different plan or you just kind of let them go with that looking away approach?
1: Yeah, no, I would tell them that you probably should look for something different. Yeah, it just, but it depended on the team you're playing too.
3: Right. And I think it goes back to what you talked about with that, with a lot of that variability training and making things hard. I, 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 you hear it all the time in all sports, right? To make practice harder than competition. You know, and, and if you're able to do that, guys are able to adjust on the fly when there is some intention, there's stuff going on in the game. But if, if you've just trained that front toss pitch down the middle the entire time with the perfect swing, all, the to- all of a sudden things get hard. I'm not seeing fastballs. I'm not seeing it where I can hit it. If that guy isn't built or have that mental toughness in his training um, to be able to make those adjustments on the fly, that's a recipe for disaster pretty quick.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Yeah, no doubt.
0: Well, Coach, I think that kind of wraps things up for us today. We, we, we really thank you for coming on and taking an hour out of your day to, to get on this. You know, I guess here in Ellensburg, it's a snowy day outside, but just to get to talk baseball here, the, start the year off right in 2021.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed
0: it. Appreciate that. Well, Jason and Kelly and I will be right back in the bullpen to wrap this thing up. <laughs> Well, Banner fans, we're back to wrap this thing up, and we really appreciate Joe Ross coming on with us tonight. And, guys, I'll, I'll lead off the uh, the bullpen session here. Uh, I think we've said it multiple times in the podcast that hitting is the hardest thing to do in sports, and I love his take on, and it especially hits home with us at the high school level and the small school level, and, and it's all through baseball, I feel like, but just the simplify baseball, simplify hitting, it, it's – it's hard. It's really difficult to do. But I have I was a young coach that told everybody we got to do this, this, and this, and I've learned that we can't have robots. We can't have nine guys in the lineup doing the exact same thing. I'd rather have uh, nine guys that hit the crap out of the ball each time than look perfect each single time. And, and I know that there's a lot of guys probably turning the volume off right now, but, uh, you know, and I think the biggest thing for a good hitting coach, especially the high, smallest high school level, train approach, aggressiveness, in your eyes. And I think the eyes are a big thing. And that's probably even going to be a conversation that I'm going to start with. I think off the air, we talked about with our parents, like, Hey, have your kids ever had their eyes looked at or they ever checked? Because I know I'm a personal example that I couldn't see. And I couldn't see a ground ball fly by me at my last year at central. And I put glasses on and I could see the ball again. So I thought that was just great, and that it's really is the hardest thing to do in sports, but it can be pretty simple to do it and to keep your kids engaged and, and, and not confuse them. And there's going to be guys that you can break it down with. And there's guys that you can break down each little bit of hitting. And they're going to eat that up. And I, I love that because I can do that with those guys and, and really get into it. And, and, you know, there's also the kid that just coach, give me the bat, I want to hit. And I think that's great. And, uh, you know, the traffic cone drill, that was one thing that we've done for quite a while at Kittitas after I got to spend the weekend there. And There's just so much, you can be creative with what you do with a low-budget and accomplished it. All it takes is a little bit of time of uh, sitting down thinking about it. Or, you know what, like most of us do in baseball coaching, you listen to someone else talk about it, and you steal the idea and make it your own. So uh, that that's where I'm at. And I, was, I really appreciate Coach for coming on.
2: Yeah, Eric, I think that's important. Um, that's really a simple thing that a lot of us don't even really think about it, you know, with our programs. I mean, you think a young young man should have better maybe hygiene, I guess you could maybe not use it as hygiene, but, you know, it, just taking care physical care of himself, you know, and, but uh, you know, not making it too complicated. I think, um, you know, there's, there's things that are a super plus side on, on the, the uh, technology and the ways of, you know, um, improving our, our players to become better hitters at the plate. But, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, we don't all have, all have that luxury of finances, but you know, for you coach out there that's listening to us today and, and thinking, well, how am I going to do this? I and mean, we don't have a major budget, you know I mean? I'll be honest with you guys at Tracy prep, our budget is $300, you know, and so we have to do some fundraising, you know, things, but we get creative, you know, we come up with methods to make our kids, uh, successful, you know, and that's maybe doing simple, you know, stand-ins or, you know, just, you know, simple, uh, you know, cone on a, on a, a ball on a cone kind of drill, you know, um, you know, but I really liked about today, what's important is the, the uh, plate discipline awareness. You know, I think, guys, it's important that we um, have our guys are seeing that pitch all the way through. Um, you know, I know we talked a little bit about that off air, but I think it's a matter of the more times that you as a player are seeing that ball thrown at you, the more you're, you're going to adjust and allow yourself to slow that down. Um, but you know, I think it's those things that make you successful. You know, um, I mentioned Kyle, Kyle Lewis from manners, you know, that was one of his things on uh, the off season is how do I become a better hitter is my plate discipline. It's getting behind the ball. And I think that if, uh, we, you know, take our players out to the field each, you know, each week, and we're working on those things, you're going to see those averages increase, you know? So I think it's, it was a great, uh, um, show today. I mean, Coach Ross, man, he's got some solid information, and I hope you guys are all enjoying that.
3: Yeah, I, I pivot a little bit and talk about just the recruiting side of things that that he talked about, and and, and the biggest take home um, that I liked is 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 the fit of the individual player. Um, and there's a lot of really great players out there, um, but it's trying to find the match to to your individual program and what you teach um within hitting and, and your general offensive philosophy I think we've talked about this before whether you're a team that wants to create chaos or your team that wants to hit doubles home runs um there's a player to match that um you know mindset out there you know and, and just because a player might not be as good as the other guy as far as his his skills um you know if he, if he fits your system better it's going to be a lot easier to develop that guy when you're not maybe fighting some of those habits that you're trying to get out of the guy so if, if he already has the strengths that match your individual philosophy um that guy is going to be so much better of a player um and and, and so hearing some of that stuff and, and you know kind of being at that cutting edge of the of the elevate the baseball type thing those guys hit a ton of home runs um you know you look back at some of the seasons that washington had um very very offensive groups and and, and, and that was part of their philosophy and there's and there's plenty of different ways to create runs don't get me wrong and, and one's not better than the other um, but finding guys that kind of match what 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 you teach and, and and maybe even their personalities you know i think one of the benefits that we've had uh the opportunity to do is is to to bring guys out in a tryout situation um and instead of just sitting there and, and taking measurables and, and saying yes or no have our coach be able to you know work specifically with him to see how he takes to information to the things that we're trying to teach. Um, and, and if he can make some adjustments on the fly in that kind of dynamic pressure situation, you know, that guy is going to be better to work with down the line. So um, yeah, finding that match for you as an individual. And, and I think as, as high school coaches, it's being able to, to sell that system like you guys talked about in your, in your first meetings to be able to say, this is what we do. This is what tri-cities prep or kid baseball is and get that buy-in. Um, and and have older guys teach younger guys, like we've talked about a ton on this on this podcast. But whatever it is, is, is getting people to buy into the system. At the college level, you have the luxury of being able to vet that beforehand end to to see who's who. Um, but find the system that you like, believe in it, and 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 have your players buy into to that system and and let it run. Absolutely. Well, guys, what
0: a way to bring in the new year. I hope you guys had a great New Year's. Eve, day, watching football. I think we got a football game we need to get to watching here soon. Uh, But, guys, I'm totally thrilled about this episode. A lot to break down, a lot to keep going. And and you know what? A big shout-out to the listeners. We put a Twitter poll out, or not poll, a, a conversation literally an hour or two ago before we started recording, and we're getting great content, great people sharing ideas of their tricks and hitting and some of the stuff they like to do along the way. Guys, keep it coming. I love the interaction. Keep this going. Uh, hopefully, you guys, maybe we'll share some ideas of anything you guys might have heard. I guess we got another week before the ABCA convention coming up for the people that are virtually online. So if you're going to be there, hit us up. Let us know you're going to be online. Excited about it. Thank you, Devo Bats. Get on there. There is a Fungo banner code. We're going to release that tomorrow. If you get on there, 10% off any Devo Bat or Fungo. So let your players know. Let your coaching staff know. Heck, order for your coaching staff. Get everybody up. A fresh new Devo Bat Fungo to start the year off. And thank you to Tri Cities Safeguard. Check them out online, try, TRI, safeguard.com. Get on there. And guys, until next week, I think we might be heading north. The temperature is getting a little colder for our next episode that we just locked up. I can't wait for this one. It's going to be great. And listeners, you're, I feel like you're going to love this one. So, you know what? Take care of one another, guys. Enjoy some football today. Let's get back to baseball. Pacific Northwest Fungo Banner is part of the Big Country Media Podcast Network. Check out all episodes anywhere you can get your podcast. And for you iTunes listeners, please get on and give us a rate and review. Keep up to date with us on Facebook at Pacific Northwest Fungo Banter and on Twitter at Fungo Banter PNW. Fungo Banner Podcast is powered by Devo Bats, the official bat and fungo of your Pacific Northwest Fungo Banner Podcast. Go check them out on all social media platforms and at DevoBats.com. Fungo Banner is also powered by Safeguard out of the Tri-City. We are proud to have them on board with us making the Fungo Banner gear. Guys, local company of the Tri-Cities, please go online, check them out, Trysafeguard.com for all your printing and advertising needs.